This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we hear the critique of the Pharisees who want to write off Jesus' ministry as the work of evil. We also see Jesus field their request for a sign. Absolutely. We were long last time. Let's see how short we can make this. Don't get your hopes up, everybody. That still won't be short, but let's just dive right in. Turns out there's a lot to say about Jesus. It's <laughs> a great way to put it. And I'm trying to get session three in less than 100 episodes. <laughs> I'm here for the long haul, whatever you want to do. (laughs) Well, let's dive right in and just pick up where we left off last week. How about that? All right, Matthew 12, verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. All right, so let's deal with this whole Beelzebul thing. Raises a whole bunch of questions. Let's just kind of deal with that. What are the Pharisees saying, and why do they use the term Beelzebul? Well, first we need to know where Beelzebul comes from. So Beelzebul is a reference um, back to the Old Testament. There's actually a reference in the Old Testament, and we're going to link, Brent, in the show notes we found the Wikipedia article. I really liked it. It was a very concise rendering of Beelzebul. There's a lot of modern usages of Beelzebul. Christian literature loves to talk about Beelzebul being Satan. It's not that that's necessarily a bad connection or incorrect, but it's definitely not Jewish. Um, It's not going to help us here. So there's a reference to Beelzebul in the Old Testament, um, which literally means, and there's there's a debate here. It means one of two things. It's, it's a reference from the Hebrew Baal, or we talk about Baal, that ancient pagan god Baal in all of its different forms. Baal and then Zebub or Zebul, one of the two. If it's Zebub, it literally means Baal, which means Lord, and, and Zebub means flies. So Lord of the flies is where that term comes from. Now, there's a big rabbinical debate. Was, where did, they're not rabbinical debate, excuse me. There's a scholastic historical debate uh, over where that's coming from. A lot of scholars say that in the land of Philistia, um, with the Philistines, very prominent people group in the Old Testament, we talk about the Baals a lot. And a lot of times I've talked about Baals from which country? Not not Philistia, but which one, Brent? Mm, Assyria? Not quite, but it is north. It's on the coast. North on the coast. Paired up with Solomon and Ahab and Omri, the land of the Phoenicians. Phoenicians, baby. <laughs> yeah, land of Phoenicians. I can get it when you give me almost the whole thing. <laughs> so the Phoenicians are the coastal people from the north, and the Philistines are the coastal people from the south. Now, usually when we talk about Baal worship, we talk about Phoenicia because they had the most evolved, the most advanced, the most prominent, especially in the Old Testament story with the idolatry of Israel. Uh, they were the ones that you're usually dealing with. But the Philistines are a very prominent people group. They, their worship of Baal was slightly different. And some of the things that we pick up in in uh, Philistine mythology is that they believed Baal was the one who casted out disease. And so in, Philist, in Philistine mythology, disease was often represented by flies because flies, when you look at feces or death or whatever, the flies are gathering on the corpse. The flies are gathering on the, on the poo. The flies are gathering on anything that is sick and gross and dead and dying. And so they associated flies with sickness. And so one of the things they said was that Baal, 
according to one's, one view of history. Baal was the lord of the flies. Baal sends and shoes the flies away. He is Baal Zabub, lord of the flies. There's another school of historical thought. Other scholars that say, no, 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 no. The, the word was actually Baal Zabul, Baal, Baal, Zabul, which means lord of the heavens, heavenly lord, lord of all. In essence, Beelzebul. And if that's the case, they say Beelzebub arose because the Hebrews were making fun of that Philistine, that Philistinian um, mythology about the flies. And they were making a play on words and saying, well, Baal's your God and your flies, so Baal's the Lord of the flies. So there's a debate there. I like to lean towards a first so I would translate this, if I were the translators, which I'm not, and we're all glad for that. But if I was the translators here, I would translate this Beelzebub and not Beelzebul, because I believe that what Jesus is being accused of here, what has he just gotten done doing, Brent? Story starts uh, with? Healing some people on the Sabbath. Okay. And then literally in this passage here. They brought him a demon-possessed man. So he's casting out evil. And the Pharisees respond with, well, he's just Beelzebub. He's just he's just working with all this old pagan idolatry, which is able to cast out evil, referencing this Baal. He's working with Baal. That's what he's doing. And Jesus is like, well, no, that doesn't work. And we're going to dig into that. So go ahead and see what Jesus says in response to this. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? Which I love that part. I'll stop right here. So Jesus says, uh, every kingdom. So, so Jesus knows where the parashim, the, the parushim stand, the Pharisees. He, he knows that they think that Baal is evil, satanic. He knows that they think demons are evil and satanic. And so Jesus is like, that doesn't work. Like if, if they're all this, the kingdom of evil, how could I be driving out evil and be simultaneously working for evil? That doesn't make any sense. Satan can't drive out Satan. If I'm tearing apart my own kingdom, that wouldn't make any sense. So your logic is not sound. And then I love that reference. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you, your people drive them out? I think we look at that and go, oh yeah, everybody else is driving out demons. I think Jesus' point is nobody else is driving out demons. We've talked before in our podcast, Brent, about how miracles aren't that unique. There were other rabbis, according to historical Jewish literature, that were doing miracles. And we talked about how many Old Testament figures do miracles. It's not like Jesus is the only person in the Bible that does miracles. But one thing that is unique to Jesus, that Jesus points out routinely, is that he can drive out demons. And according to Jewish thought in Second Temple period, a typical man can't do that. Only God can drive out demons because only God is God over the demonic. So driving out demons is only something that God can do. Healing the sick, that's fine. Raising the dead, well, Elijah did that. Like, you can do any miracle you want, but when it comes to demons, well, that has to come from only one source, and that's God alone. And so I think Jesus' point here is, so I'm just curious, when your people cast out demons, oh, oh, oh wait, no, they don't. So I think that's the, uh, I could be wrong there. That's just my opinion. But I, I love how he tosses that in there. Like, A, I can't be tearing apart my own kingdom. And B, your people aren't doing this. So where is it? There's only one place this can be coming from because you all know what your Jewish thought is surrounding 
casting out of demons. Go ahead and keep reading. So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And there's that reference to the kingdom of God. We talk about the finger of God. The Gospel of Luke is actually the reference where Jesus uses the term finger of God. Matthew here using the term spirit of God. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, Jesus says in Luke, then the kingdom of God has come among you. We've talked about that before in the past, but there's that reference. So... Go ahead and read the next verse. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. So again, Jesus pointing out the 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 lack of logic in their accusation. He says, how can I be casting out demons unless I'm stronger than the... I have to actually be able to tie up the strong man in order to cast plunder his house, cast out demons. I would have to be not one of them. I'd have to be stronger than them in order to do the things that I'm doing. Go ahead and keep reading. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Okay, that's a big verse, right? Everybody always wants to know what the... What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's the only unforgivable sin. Well, not to mention the... Uh, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Right. But then at another point, Jesus says basically the opposite. Right. If you're not against me, you're for me. Right. I remember in uh, Bible college, I had to do a word study on the word blasphemeo, which is the word that's used here. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? The Greek word that's used here, and again, Matthew, written in Greek, not written in Greek, who knows? But the word for blaspheme here, blasphemeo, means to speak ill of, to um, to tear down, to um, to slander. So in essence, what I feel like Jesus is getting at with the Pharisees here is he's, he's telling the Pharisees, it's one thing to critique me as a teacher, to try to trap me as a rabbi. It's one thing to disagree with me. It's another thing to stand in the way of what God is doing. And what you are doing is you are seeing God at work around you. You are watching God free people from demonic oppression, and you are calling it evil. We talked before in session one about what happens when God's people become the what, Brent? The anti-story. The anti-story. I think Jesus' point here is the one sin that just can't be forgiven is when you are working contrary to God. When you are blasphemed, when the Holy Spirit is bearing testimony to one thing and you bear counter-testimony against it. And I don't think Jesus' point is like, once you do that, you can never be forgiven. Like, that's not what he means by the unforgivable sin. What he means is it's not okay to be in that place, to stand in that place, to walk that path and be forgiven. That path is going against God. That is the anti-story. His point to the Pharisees is, it is clear that the Holy Spirit is testifying about the work that we're doing. It's clear that whose side we're on. It's clear. And you're finding a way to turn this into, you're accusing me of working for the evil one? Well, that's the, that you're blaspheming the whole, you're not just critiquing me as a rabbi. You're not just disagreeing with my teaching. You're not just wrestling with my doctrine. You are actually saying that I am working for the other team. And I'm actually here doing the work of God. And everything about what I do testifies to that fact. You are in a very dangerous place because you cannot stand in that place and be it's one thing to miss the point. It's one thing to get something a little wrong. There are lots of things that we don't have to see clearly, and the forgiveness of God, praise be to him, covers us. It is another thing when we are religiously trained, leadership, astute theologically, and we are actually working against counter to the things that God is doing clearly in our world. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
when you speak against the work of God, you are standing in a place that can't be fixed until you step out of that place and jump on board with the thing that God is doing. So that's the warning, I believe, from Jesus. Go ahead and keep reading, Brent. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And again, I think that's an Ezekiel reference, not a Daniel reference. And again, not a reference to Ezekiel, but an Ezekiel-type usage. I think that's Jesus saying, listen, you can talk against men all day long. You can disagree about teachers. You start disagreeing about what—you start speaking against God, the Holy Spirit, and what, what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world. You're in a completely different conversation. And then Jesus makes the point that he made in the Sermon on the Mount, which is beautifully fitting here. So go ahead and read the paragraph, and then we'll talk about it, Brent. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, who are evil, say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. And so, just, boy, sounds really reminiscent of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, Beware of false teachers. By your fruit, you will, by their fruit, you will know them. You can't pick grapes from thistles or figs from thorn bushes. Like, you can't do that. A good tree produces good fruit. And, a bad, and he says almost the exact same thing here. And he puts that statement in a perfect location because he just got done saying all these things. I can't be working against myself. A kingdom divided can't stand. The Holy Spirit's bearing testimony to this. And he caps it off by saying, listen, look around you. What is the fruit that's coming out of my ministry? What is the fruit that's coming out of my work? The demonically oppressed are healed. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cured. And you're telling me I'm a bad tree? That just doesn't work. And so we see an application of the very thing he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And what I love about this, it's the exact same thing I pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not knowing a bad tree by its bad fruit. If you remember in the examples, Jesus doesn't give a bad tree example. He gives a good tree example. He says you can't pick figs from thistles or grapes from thorn bushes. You can't, you can't do that. And he uses good fruit to say it can't be a bad tree. If you've got good fruit, it has to be a good tree. And here's the same thing. He says, I'm doing good work. I can't be a bad tree. I have to be a good tree. So I just love, I wish we made, we got more mileage out of that teaching from Jesus. Because I think when we look throughout the world of church, of spirituality, of spiritual leaders, of the blogosphere, of Twitter, of whatever it is we want to look at, when we look throughout the world and we were to look at things, we could judge a tree by the fruit that's born out of it. I think it'd just be such a useful teaching that I don't know why we don't come back to more. But nevertheless, let's finish. Well, there's always that fear of like, don't judge lest you be judged. But that's not the kind of judgment we're talking about. Right. Absolutely. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. All right. I actually had a bunch of notes from a few years back that I 
really enjoyed when I read them preparing for our podcast today. So I just want to read some notes here that I wrote a while ago. Uh, We often read this passage and think to ourselves, Jesus responded to the Pharisees' request, like saying, you want a sign? No, the only sign you're going to receive is the fact that I'm going to be in the tomb and rise again in three days. That's all the sign you're going to get. And while there's certainly some truth in this reading, it misses the depth that lies in the heart of what this rabbi says to these Torah-trained teachers. First of all, while the connection of three days and three nights to the resurrection is obviously there, this would not have been Jesus' original teaching point. I think there are many tongue-in-cheek references, inferences, we could call them, to Jesus' resurrection by Matthew as the author, kind of after the fact. This gospel is obviously written after the resurrection, so he inserts some inferences when he tells the story. Um, and, and they're all going to catch this. Their readers are all going to catch this as they read the gospel on the other side of Jesus' resurrection. But as we've seen before, a prophetic teaching will not make an empty or cryptic statement about the future that could not be interpreted by the present listeners. Whatever Jesus is saying, it has, it has to find its primary meaning in what the audience can glean and learn from the reference. So Jesus has to be saying something else about Jonah that is disconnected from his own resurrection. And I'll let our listeners reference, uh, wrestle with that because I think there are some remezes there to three days and three nights that are found in the Old Testament, Brent, that are pretty interesting and I think could lend some drash, if you will, to the way that we read that. But for now, I'm going to keep going on. You're talking about beyond just the reference to Jonah? Yes, right. So so why would Jesus say three days and three nights in the fish? Beyond just the Jonah reference, there has to be something about three days and three nights. When you look throughout the Old Testament, I think when you search for it, you'll find some interesting connections to three days and or three nights and the things that Jesus could be referencing there. Uh, second, this typical interpretation misses and ignores basically the entire rest of the teaching. So we look at it, and we're like, oh, he's saying that the sign is going to be his resurrection. And yet we ignore the entire rest of the paragraph. Um, uh, namely, the mention of Nineveh and Queen Shiva, which is clearly an intentional reference by Jesus. Whatever we do with Jesus' teaching, it needs to make sense of these two references. So what was Jonah known for? What do you remember Jonah being known for? We looked at the story not too long ago when we were sailing across the sea to go to the other side in the story of the demoniac, Brent. But we had a reference to Jesus sleeping on a cushion, right? And we thought, ah, Jonah. But why was that reference of Jonah particularly relevant? Jonah was trying to get away. Okay. Because he was supposed to go where? Supposed to go to the the pagan nations. Right. The pagans, the Gentiles, right? As we've looked at earlier, Jesus has already used Jonah as a teaching point regarding Jonah's ministry to the Gentiles. Jesus says the only sign that the Pharisees should need is the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Why will Nineveh rise at the judgment and condemn that generation? Because they heard the preaching of Jonah and repented. Why was the queen of Sheba referenced? Because she came from the ends of the earth as a pagan to hear the wisdom of the Lord. Jesus responds to the Pharisees, You want a sign? The Gentiles are believing this stuff. Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, and the Gentiles repented at the preaching of the kingdom of God now. This is exactly what your scriptures tell you will happen. Sheba came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon, and the Gentiles are coming to hear from me. Someone greater than Solomon and Jonah are here, is here, and you're missing it. Jesus' answer is rooted in text. His claim is that the very thing the prophets spoke of and sought out was happening before their eyes, and they were missing it. This story always gives me pause. I must ask whether or not I'm missing the obvious. 
I think of how often I hear people trying to explain how non-believers can do good things. We want to go to great lengths to explain how all the people who aren't wearing the right labels are not in the kingdom of God. And I wonder how many times we set up camp with the Pharisees and ask God for things that we that are already happening all around us. One of my favorite teachers likes to say, what you look for, you will find. If we look to find the world corrupt and falling apart, we will find it. There's plenty to see. If we look for all the broken places and things that exist in disharmony, there are plenty of examples to see. If we look for everything that's wrong and all the ways people mess up, failure abounds around us. What we look for, we will find. But if we look for the kingdom of God bursting forth in all kinds of places we'd never expect, if we try to find light shining in dark places, if we say, if we stay attentive to the work of God and people who don't wear the t-shirts, I wonder if we would find God more than ever. I wonder if there are signs of Jonah all over our world and we are missing it. What we look for, we will find. I want to look for and be surprised by God. And what I love about this story following up the one we just looked at, Brent, is it follows up that reference of when you find good fruit, you have a what? You have a good tree. A good tree. And I wonder if this isn't the thing that the Pharisees are continuing to struggle with in the very next paragraph when they say, we want a sign. And Jesus says, you got to be kidding me. The signs are all around you. The Gentiles are already engaging in the work of the kingdom of God. It's happening everywhere you look and you just don't see it because you're not looking for the right thing. Um, and I just think about how many times I've grown up and you grew up in a Christian school. I don't know how much you heard this, Brent, but, um, I know when I grew up, I was always told that non-believers, when they're happy, they're really not truly happy when they're patient. It's really just selfishness. Like whatever good you see in their life, it's really not good. It just looks good because it's actually bad because only good can come from believers. And it just, it just runs contrary to everything that Jesus teaches over and over and over again, which is when you see good, it's God at work. Um, And the sign of Jonah is all around us. We got one more little mini paragraph, unless you got any questions or thoughts on that, but we got a couple more paragraphs. A little more chunk from the Jonah portion. Uh, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through... Oh yeah, I forgot about this. (laughs) It goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. And I have wrestled with the remez on that one. Seven ways till Sunday. I got some interesting ideas, but nevertheless, we'll deal with Peshat. I think... Jesus quotes this teaching here. I forgot about this little paragraph here until you read it. Is he referencing the demon-possessed man that he just healed a few moments ago? Boy, interesting. Because I... <laughs> that, yeah. doesn't, that doesn't sound good. Right. I think the reference there is, see, I wonder about the seven spirits. Like, why the seven spirits? And I've wondered about the land of Canaan and the Israelites coming in and, ex- and expelling the seven nations and being replaced by one. I want, I think this is my, you can disagree with me. Our listeners can disagree with me. My take on this is Jesus is saying, you Pharisees are working so hard to expel what's wrong. You're working so hard to push out evil. You're working so hard to get rid of the evil spirit. And the problem is you're not working hard at putting anything good in its place. Where's the goodness? Where's the compassion? Where's the justice? Where's the, you're so worried about cleaning your house, you haven't put any new furniture in it. 
you've gotten rid of the bad, but you haven't replaced it with anything good. And the problem with that is that you've spent this whole time getting rid of the bad, and now even more evil seeps in and invades that house and sets up camp. So you're even worse than when you began, which I just have always loved that teaching. I've been able to experience it in different ways in my own life. Just, and I don't know, nobody wants to talk about this stuff, but I will. It's the Baymaw podcast. I'm in charge. Um, that sounded really arrogant. I didn't like that. Uh, but, but you know, one of the things we never talk about that I, I, I know, I know guys in college, I'm a campus minister. We, we wrestle with this all the time. Apparently statistics tell me women are wrestling with this more and more and more today. But I think about the things that we wrestle with, with internet pornography and how many men in college that I work with and work alongside of as they struggle to overcome, um, different levels of porn addiction. And I just, it always astounds me at how much energy we expend to try to get rid of this negative thing. We try to, we spend all this time trying to not engage something. We spend all this time. And I, I, I love to talk about, I can't remember what teacher I heard this from, but some teacher that taught me, taught me about light and darkness. They said, darkness is not a thing. It's not a thing. It's the absence of a thing. Darkness is the absence of what, Brent? Of light. Of light. Can you get rid of darkness? I mean, you can, you can make it disappear. And how, what's the only way you can do that? Add light. Can you actually physically grab darkness and move it? No. Nope. Darkness is simply the absence of a thing. The only way you get rid of it is to fill it with, its, with the thing that it's lacking. Darkness is the absence of light. You turn on the light, you get rid of darkness. I feel like this teaching has always led me towards that direction. We can work so hard to get rid of a thing, and it never actually works, and we can end up in an even worse condition because we spent all of our energy trying to not, not engage porn. We spent so much energy trying to get rid of a porn addiction, and we never filled it with anything. And that porn addiction is the absence of the thing that you were created to do. The porn addiction isn't actually a thing. You can't get rid of it. You can only do the thing you were made to do. So we spend all this time trying to get rid of something that can't be expelled when instead we should have just flipped the lights on. Do the things we were made to do. Engage the things that God does want us to engage in, and those things will take care of itself. I mean, I struggled with my porn addiction for years when I was younger, until I came back from Israel and Turkey, and I woke up with a fire in my belly wanting to memorize the text. And all of a sudden, I was spending three, four hours a day getting up early, wanting to go to bed early because I had to get up early because I wanted to memorize my text, write my text, read my text, know my text because I found out it was this thing that I was like made to do. And I woke up one day and realized, it's not, it's not like I don't struggle with the porn addiction today. Every human male alive with an internet connection is going to. But it was gone. It was gone. Because I had filled my house with good furniture. Rather than spending my whole time trying to get rid of the one bad thing in my house, so that seven more moved in, I just think there's so much wisdom in that teaching. And maybe I'm totally misconnecting it, and I'm totally wrong on it. That's, that's okay. You can write that all, all, all off and... Do something else and send me an email and that would be great. But uh, that's what I think is going on there in that teaching. But All right, one more little mini paragraph and then we got this thing covered. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And here I think you see evidence of what I believe is a rift in Jesus's family. I don't believe 
Mary, Mary, Mary gave birth to Jesus. She treasured up all these things in her heart. She raised this young man, and then this young man became something that I, I don't, I don't know if she completely understood, because she was still human. Um, and that's not to speak ill of any Catholic doctrine, but I think she still had a limited perspective um, when she was here on Earth as Jesus' mother. I think she thought he was going to be something else than what he was, and then when he started doing it, she was confused. I think there's a and that's, the, that's certainly the case with a lot of people. Right. Oh, the, yeah. The gosh. disciples, like, you know, they expect Messiah is going to be one way. And he's saying, right. well, no, that's not, I know that's what you're expecting, but that's not how God wants to work in this world. Right. And I wonder if Mary agreed with somebody like John the Baptist, who was potentially Jesus's rabbi. Like, I wonder if she like encouraged Jesus to go study under this guy and agreed with his teaching. And then he gets older and disagrees and starts teaching something else. So much so that the rabbi like sends disciples and is like, what are you doing? Like, are you even the one? Cause you're not acting like it. And now mom's showing up. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like you're healing Romans and you're engaging the Pharisees and everybody's mad at you. And what are you doing to our family? And I think there's this rift here because they, they come to Jesus and they're not sitting at his feet. They're standing outside. You tell him to come out here. Cause I'm not doing the thing that he's doing in there. So you tell him to come out here. Cause I want to talk to him. And Jesus essentially in this moment of, and I hate teaching this because, especially with college students, because there are always people that are just waiting. Like they're just waiting for me to give them license to tell their parents to go take a fly and leap. Um, and, and I always hate to do that because on the other side of this coin is this commandment that we don't respect anymore about honoring our father and our mother. And I don't think the two are mutually exclusive at all because I think Jesus never broke that commandment. I think he honored Mary and Joseph and any other members of his family to the utmost honor and respect. He honored his father and his mother. And yet there is this moment where Jesus is like, no, I'm going to do the thing that God has for me. And I do love that moment with college students that I get to work with. That moment where they bump into this, there's a crossroads. There's the thing that their family thinks they ought to do. And then there's the thing that they know, like they're convicted, they're called. They know that Jesus is calling them to do this other thing. And that moment where they essentially say, like, there's a bigger and a better reality. There's a bigger and a better family. I'm not going to miss out on the thing that God is doing in God's household and God's bait off just so I can keep this other bait off happy. Now they're going to honor and they're going to respect those parents the whole time. They're going to figure out how to do that, but they are not going to miss out on this thing that God's creating with mothers and brothers and sisters. They're not going to forsake that. They're not going to miss out on that just to keep this other. It's a tension. It's a, it's a paradox. It's a double-pointed truth, um, if you will. And it's hard to manage, especially when you feel like you're caught in the middle of it. Um, but I always love this thing because eventually they come around. It'll be Mary at the foot of a cross and Jesus with John saying, behold your mother and woman, behold your son. And whether that's the moment that his family gets put back together, which is one of the things that my teacher taught. He said, that's the moment where Jesus healed the rift. One of the last things he did while he was alive on the cross was he healed the rift that was there in his family. I don't know. We can wrestle with that, but uh, there's a real human element here to the people that surround Jesus, the people that know Jesus, the gospel of John's going to clue us in on so many of these other things. When his brothers come and they say, don't go up to the festival. Like, who do you think you are? Very David-esque, David and Goliath story. Um, but there's a, real, there's a real family here that Jesus is a part of. And then there's a truer, a more real, a more true family 
that Jesus is a part of. And he, he, he's quick to point out, I'm going to keep my eye on the prize. I know what I'm here to do and I'm going to do it. And we know later on, a lot of them, uh, eventually come around to it. They do. Absolutely. They do. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. I love it. Family's complicated. Family is. Always Relationships are complicated. Since the book of Genesis, all the way into Jesus, family's always been a little dysfunctional. <laughs> so we can take comfort in that. Solidarity, if you will. All right. Well, uh, if you have any questions about the show, just go to baymontdiscipleship.com. We've got all sorts of uh, resources on there. You can get in touch with us. Uh, get in uh, touch with our Facebook page. Uh, Marty's always sharing interesting stuff on there. Uh, discussion items a couple times a week. Always good stuff. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.